0: Hey, everybody welcome to cinemusts the podcast that debates the must-see status of the films included in the book 1001 movies you must see before you die i'm second visionary mike emel and i am very excited to welcome our host for today's episode joining us from the 1000 by one podcast is the man who will do anything for a healthy bushel of apples mr ian woodington ian welcome to cinemusts
1: hey man thank you for having me i'm very excited to be here
0: dude it is our fantastic pleasure to have you here um, as everybody can probably guess by the host of, or the title of your show, "A Thousand and One by One," you guys are our brother podcast talking about movies from this beloved book of ours. Uh, would you mind taking a second to plug what it is you and your your co-host Adam St. John are doing on that show?
1: So yeah, as you said, we're we're the your brother podcast. We take the thousand and one by uh, movies you must see before you die, and we kind of take one out of the book every week and kind of determine whether in fact it does deserve to be in there or not uh occasionally we try and find a replacement either thematically or from the same director and uh yeah and another thing i find very handy about what you guys do is you do also give
0: recommendations for things that tie into what you're talking about but that are not in the book so it's also a a nice little um
1: it's also a nice little staff picks yeah exactly we like to to try and mix it up a little bit and talk about other stuff that we may have been watching throughout the week. And sometimes it's uh, connected to what we're talking about. Sometimes it's not like one of our last episodes where we covered some of the early short films. I really wanted to, to get Hugo in there, which, of course, you just did as a fantastic episode. Really liked that one a lot.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was that was a, an eerie coincidence. We did not talk about that at all, but you guys were covering the actual movies, and we were covering the movie that uh, hero worships them.
1: Yeah, and it was I I love George Melies. I've watched as many as I can uh, on YouTube because there's there's a whole bunch on there. I think there's something like 170 of his surviving films on there, which I I think we're lucky to have as many as we do, considering that he made something like 500 of them.
0: Yeah, and and to see the fate that befell uh, a lot of them as Hugo talks about um it is really astounding how they scrounged up that many prints. No,
1: it's it's it's, it's exciting that we, we that we have as many as we do. I and mean, most of them are just so charming and beautiful and who knows the the level of filmmaking that he has influenced today. I mean, and who knows what we've lost that, you know, influences that won't be attributed to him because of how many we've lost, you know what I mean?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. It it's kind of scary, but Time is time, but maybe everything is as it seems sometimes. <laughs> so if, if that left any doubt, you are obviously the right man for the job to host this show. Your love of cinema is prolific. Um, there is a bevy of content. You guys have just hit your 50th episode, which I congratulate you on. So I cannot tell you how excited I am to have you here, man.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, man. And you're, you're on the cusp of yours as well. I'm pretty pumped for that Star Wars episode.
0: Yeah, a big extravaganza coming your way, but we have got a little more dour material to get through today before we can hit that. So Ian, I I thank you for coming here to walk me through that. It is going to be a great show. Uh, So welcome, man.
1: Yeah, thank you so much again for having me.
0: And to everybody who's listening, we want to welcome you as well. It's also awesome to have you guys here, and we really hope you enjoy the show. If you do, remember you can check out all of our other episodes at our website at cinemast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And for daily interactions and updates on our show content, you can follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer. You just need to search for Cinemusts. So Ian, you and I are here today to debate the must-see status of two movies that some might say are essential viewing. But to do that, we need the help of everybody who's listening, as the two of us alone cannot decide if a movie should be considered an absolute must-see. So to help us build this essential cinema list, we need all of you listening to visit this episode's post at cinemust.com and vote tonight's films into one of three categories that are based on your personal recommendation level. Ian, I wondered if you would be kind enough to explain what the criteria for those three categories are.
1: Of course. So we've got at the top Cinemust, which it's right there in the name. Everybody must see this film. It's essential viewing, whether you're a fan of cinema or not. Uh, Cinetrust. Is something that uh, maybe you know is a good film, but you might not recommend it to everybody. Uh, Maybe you got some stuff thematically that not everybody jives with, but I mean, still, maybe worth a watch, maybe not. And then we've got Cinebust, which is just utter garbage. No one should see it. It's an abomination. Get rid of it, get it out of the book. So, with such a heated
0: condemnation of, of what would fall into a Cinebust category, I wonder if there's a show you've covered on A Thousand and One by One that you would consider a Cinebust.
1: Uh, well, I think we've had two that Adam and I felt very strongly about. Uh, one of those would be A Quiet Man, which I know we'll get some flack for. The Quiet uh, Man? We were, the, Yeah. The John Ford one. The, the, yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we were just not impressed with that. It has not aged well. At all, I think there's a lot of um, I think there's a lot of deep-seated sort of stereotyping and, and racism that happens in that film. Which I mean, yeah, it's a product of the time, but uh, I think it's it's due for a reevaluation and really needs to come out of the book. The other one that really irritated us, and we did a little more recently, was Elephant, the Gus Van Sant film with the Mm -hmm, school shooting mm. which we have both determined is extremely irresponsible filmmaking not not because of the subject matter because i think it's very important that we have these kinds of discussions when it comes to school shootings um i mean because they just they're they're happening so frequently it is a it is a pandemic that we really as a society need to deal with but the way in which gus van sant goes about it he doesn't tackle any of the important issues when it comes to it. It's a film about violence without reason, violence without consequence, and I'm not saying that there isn't such a thing as violence without reason, uh, but there is always consequence to violence, and he chooses to ignore that, and I, I think it's, I, as I said, it's, I think it's extremely irresponsible what he and Diane Keaton did in the making of that film. Sends completely the wrong messages.
0: Yeah, it was a very powerful episode you guys did, so heavy stuff. I will not ask you what would fall into CineMust territory because I know as, a, as part of your 50th episode celebration this past weekend, you have released part two of your 50th episode where you're counting down your five favorite movies that you've covered. So I will assume those would all be CineMusts and recommend listeners uh, cue that up to play right after this show so they can see what you guys think.
1: Yeah, and thank you for the plug. We appreciate it.
0: So before you and I can offer our take on which of those categories we believe the films you and I are talking about today belong in, we first need to reveal which categories listeners decided our latest episodes movies deserve. Did the 2011 exploits of two lost orphan boys, Hugo and The Kid With a Bike, obtain official must-see status? Let's find out right now. All right, just me to read in the poll results for you guys, and I will not dilly-dally. Very positive news, as both The Kid with a Bike and Hugo have achieved cinema status, according to you, the listeners both getting ahead by 50% of their votes going towards CineMust. Now, Hugo has a bit of a competition with 33% saying Cine Trust and 17% saying they haven't seen it. But The Kid With a Bike, a very interesting divide as 50% are CineMust and 50% haven't seen it. So of all the voters who have seen Kid With a Bike, it's totally a movie that everybody has to see. So for you 50% who have not seen it, it is now official, a movie that everybody must see. And we've only got one comment for this matchup from Matt Starfighter on Twitter, who says specifically of The Kid With a Bike, anything by the Dardens is solid. So we're very happy to induct their first movie onto our list of essential cinema. I really look forward to any future movies of theirs that we can dive into and explore. So yeah, that will put a bow on our last episode. Both The Kid With a Bike and Hugo will get added onto our list of essential movies, and we will lock those results in. So thank all of you who voted. Thank you at Matt Starfighter for your comments. And y'all don't be strangers, because while this poll is shut down, of course, we've got another one opening up right now for the two films we're discussing on this episode. So you've got until midnight on September 22nd to get over to cinemas.com and decide if the films we're talking about tonight will make that same list. So we won't delay any longer. Let's kick the episode back to Ian and myself to give a little backstory for how the double feature of tonight's show came to be. Okay, so Ian, co-hosts are usually responsible for the double features that we put together. And before we reveal the two movies we settled on, I need to issue you a public apology because the original double feature that you put in place was robbed from you because one of the Keystone movies you wanted in it was Ken Russell's The Devils, a 1971 British film which we had to ditch because I was unable to find a copy of it. And I know talking uh, off mic before we started, you just had a quick blurb you wanted to say about its distribution.
1: Well, I, I, think it's, it's, I think it's unfair for you to have to issue a public apology. I think it's very pertinent that Warner Brothers issue an apology to all of us. Um, it is an extremely important, very beautiful film um, that isn't really even about uh, religion and um, I think some of the the blasphemy that they feel takes place in the film. The film is really about religion being used as a political tool to sort of degrade people and to to sort of take what they want. The film deals with Cardinal Richelieu uh, using this incident that really happened in the town of Loudon in France in the 1630s for political gain and in, uh, in a sort of holy war uh, Protestants versus Catholics and and things like that. Uh, the reason why that film is not more widely available is that Warner Brothers are very afraid of its tonality. Um, the uncut version, the, the version that runs about 117 minutes, has not been seen really in the last 10 years outside of some very small film festivals. Uh, the only way that you can obtain even the longest cut of it, which runs about 110, 112 minutes is through uh, the BFI's two-disc edition available in the UK, so if anybody out there has a region-free player, I 100% uh, endorse you importing that. Um, Very important, very beautiful film, a great, great performance from both Oliver Reed and Vanessa Redgrave. And you know, there's, there's a couple of great documentaries on there as well dealing with some of the, the plights of trying to get it made and the controversy behind its release. And they actually do have a, a, a priest who was a member of the Catholic League of Decency and a part of the board which gave their recommendations down to both the BBFC and the MPAA about how they felt the Catholic community would sort of interpret and react to films. And he does talk at length about... Um, how he feels, feels the film is not blasphemous, so you have it right there from the word of a very well-respected uh, Catholic priest. He actually goes on to compare it to The Exorcist and how The Exorcist is far more blasphemous than The Devils, yet that got a wide, very well-received release, and I think it's a, an absolute travesty that The Devils didn't deserve the same.
0: Listeners can imagine the the great conversation we would have had, so um, I, I like you said, I guess it shouldn't be me apologizing, but I, I did set you up and it was only at about the, the ninth hour to midnight that I had to message you and say, I can't find it. Shutter doesn't have it anymore. We have to, to switch gears. So I hope it's such a time that it gets a, more pu- or a, a wider release or I'm at least able to import the, the UK DVD that we can have you back on the show to talk about it because uh, I'd never seen it. I thought it was going to be very intriguing. What you just said only affirms that, but I'm still really excited with um what we settled on. You do still ke- get to keep the other film. I, I would say the the A-picture from the double feature you are putting together, and we did find a suitable substitution, so would you mind sharing with the folks listening what two movies we are going to discuss tonight and why we wound up choosing them?
1: All right, so tonight we are talking about Robin Hardy's The Wicker Man and um, Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now, both from 1973, and the reason these two actually paired so well together is not just because they're British cult quote-unquote horror films, which we'll delve into the reason why they may or may not deserve to be lauded as, as horror films or not, but uh, they were also the A and B picture. Uh, to, they were shown on a double bill throughout the UK. Now, I couldn't find in my research whether they were in the US as well, but certainly in the UK, if you went and saw Don't Look Now, you would have had uh, The Wicker Man as the B picture playing before it, in a much truncated version, but you, you still would have had the two together.
0: So, I find this really exciting. This is, I think, the first double feature we've put together on the show that itself was an actual double feature played in cinemas. Um, Ironically enough, I think uh, The Wicker Man would have been the B picture in this. Am I right?
1: That's correct. So, you would have seen uh, The Wicker Man first. And typically, B pictures ran anywhere between 80 and 90 minutes. And then you had your longer two hour film, which, of course, in this case is is Don't Look Now. Mm -hmm.
0: So, the irony here is that uh, for the purposes of our double feature, Wicker Man is the A feature. This is the one that you went after. You wanted this with the Devils. We couldn't get the devils, so we subbed in. Don't look now, I think a, a great substitution. But yeah, we are we are flipping the A picture B picture status. Although I think we are going to tackle them in the same order as UK cinema goers would have seen them in.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. I'm I'm really happy to be trying to replicate that experience somewhat.
0: I'm I'm really excited for it, man. So let's dive into it. So for anybody who's new to the show. We are going to take a couple of minutes to be totally spoiler-free. Ian and I are basically going to try to sell these movies to anybody who's never seen them or never heard of them. So we'll give a quick plot summary. Ian and myself will vote both of the movies into one of the three categories that he described, CineMust, CineTrust, or Cinabust. And then we are going to have to give three reasons apiece for why we voted the movie the way that we did. Once we've done that for both movies, we will issue a spoiler warning. So if you want to watch the movies, you can stop the episode clean. Go watch the movies and come back to it. But in the spoiler section, we will back up those points that we made and why these movies do or do des- or don't deserve to be considered absolute must-sees. So let's get rolling with it with this B uh, quote-unquote B picture. Ian, we've got The Wicker Man up first. I wondered if you could tell us what that movie is about.
1: Absolutely. So in The Wicker Man, we have a Sergeant Neil Howie, played by Edward Woodward, of the West Highland Police. He is summoned. By a mysterious letter to Summerisle off the coast of Scotland to investigate the disappearance of a missing girl. When he first lands, he is greeted with apprehension from the locals and told the girl is not one of theirs. Further investigation leads him to find that the girl did in fact exist, and may have been murdered in accordance with pagan belief. He soon comes face to face with the island's leader, Lord Summerisle, played beautifully by Christopher Lee, and finds his Christian faith tested in a race against time to uncover the truth before their ritualistic May Day celebrations. So uh, with that plot summary in mind, please, Mike, go ahead and tell us uh, how you voted and your three reasons why. You know, man, just for
0: the short while I've known you, I don't think I love this movie as much as you, but I am still very proudly going to vote The Wicker Man, a cinema must, a movie I would recommend to everybody. Uh, It's really something special, and the three reasons I could think of for why I like this movie enough to recommend to everybody, the first one is that it is the ultimate folk horror movie. Every folk horror movie is compared to The Wicker Man. We just have... uh, Midsummer is still really hot because at the time we're recording this, the director's cut of Midsummer is going back into theaters. Ari Aster is hot stuff. Midsummer has only been compared to the 1973 version of The Wicker Man. So there is a lot that it does with that genre that I think is still very fresh, very surprising, but also well deserving of its legacy. Uh, the second reason I think everybody should see it, I think it's just such a fantastic comparison of religious ideologies. You got into that with your plot summary. We have a very devout Christian guy, awash in this mysterious island that's just rife with pagan rituals. And the way that those two ideologies clash and even overlap, I think is still really relevant, very interesting. And it's all brought out by my third reason everybody has to see this movie, Sir Christopher Lee. He's freaking amazing in this movie. I love every scene he's in. I know this is a very special movie to him. I think he considers it the best movie he ever starred in he he's just so good in the movie like his performance is easily a third of the reason i think everyone should see it um so those are my three reasons ian i think i know where you're going with it but let's make it official how are you going to vote for the wicker
1: man a 100% cinemast and uh my three reasons why i think i'm going to overlap a little bit with you so i apologize for that and i i do have to ask before i list them would you have blamed me if all three reasons were christopher lee
0: No, absolutely not. (laughs) All right. Well, I I, I would have, I would have liked to seen like the three sides of Christopher Lee. So you know, if it was Christopher Lee the lover, Christopher Lee the warrior,
1: Uh, Christopher Lee the the cult pagan leader, right? Yeah. All right. So he he is my number one reason. I I I think he did uh, a fantastic job campaigning to get this film made. Uh, it was written for him as something to break him out of his rut that he was in with Hammer Horror being stuck playing Fu Manchu and, and Dracula for mm-hmm. so many years. And uh, he just, he takes it and runs with it and does, he's mesmerizing. I mean, he was mesmerizing in most things that he did, but I think even more so here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my, my second reason overlaps with yours a little bit as well. I am absolutely fascinated with the idea of the old gods versus the new gods. Religious ideologies uh, coming to a head. I I did grow up very religious and and left at a very young age, and so I you know I I've always felt torn between two different worlds, two different lifestyles, and so that it really did hit home for me in a in a very personal way. I'm not saying that I am pagan, but I, there are certain things about the that ritualistic lifestyle that I do find fascinating. And my third reason is um, this film is generally regarded as a horror film, of course it's been called the Citizen Kane of horror films, which is just great, I love that, I love that somebody made that comparison, Um, and we can get into whether it's deserving of that or not later, but this film is in fact a musical, posing as a horror film, it is a great great folk musical and the music is what makes up so much of its great DNA and the songs are just infectious and and beautiful and we'll talk about certain truncated versions of the songs or songs that were almost cut entirely in shorter versions of it.
0: Yeah and that uh, we are definitely going to talk about that in spoilers it's a big component of this uh, the ultimate folk horror label that I'm leveling against it so Awesome, both of us 100% on board. Cinema a must for The Wicker Man. Let's see if we sync up for Don't Look Now, which I have the plot summary for. Again, this is also from 1973, directed by the, the legendary Nicholas Roeg. Um, and the plot, and if I wrote a plot summary for it, it would go something like this. After the untimely death of their young daughter, Laura and John Baxter, played by Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland, take a work trip to Venice as they cope with their grief. But strange supernatural occurrences plague them both when Laura befriends an elderly blind psychic with a message from beyond and John begins seeing a figure wearing his daughter's distinct red coat among the winding back alleys of the city. Ian, I've got no idea where you're coming at from this. What are you going to vote? Don't look now.
1: I, I do have to cheat a little bit and I apologize. Um, I am somewhere between a sin of trust and a sin of bust on this Ooh. one. And I'm really hoping that our conversation can help steer me uh, in one direction or the other, I I will say that I was a little bit underwhelmed by uh, Don't Look Now and my three reasons for being as such. As first Hang one, Re- really quick, was this a first time viewing? This was a first time viewing.
0: Okay, very good. No, please go on with your but, three reasons. But
1: it, it's got such a uh, it's got such a, a reputation that I think yeah. that that can be damaging to certain films. And we can explore that later as well. Uh, so reason number one is the the performances. The two sisters, especially, I don't. They're, they're rough. Those performances are very, very rough around the edges, and I'm not sure if that's anything to do with, with editing or uh, direction style from Nicholas Rogue. I also feel a little unconvinced of the couple's grief, and I will uh, give some examples of that in our uh, spoilery portion of the episode. Uh, the second reason is, uh, and this may be a bit of a cheap, maybe a bit of a nitpicky one, the music in this film is really kitschy, and uh, I, I find myself that I am very hypercritical of scores. If you go back and listen to our 1001 by one episode on E.T., I am quite vocal uh, about John Williams scoring that. I, I know, I, I apologize, but I, <laughs> I, I, don't be, I don't like being told how to feel through music, and, not, and I'm not saying that Don't Look Now does this, but the music uh, really did pull me out. And uh, my third reason is uh, is the hype. This film really does have a, a big reputation for, for certain scenes. Of course, the, the sex scene in particular. And uh, I just, I don't know. I just didn't believe the hype. That is all extremely fair. So hopefully, hopefully my three reasons were not too heartbreaking. Mike, would you like to share your three reasons with us, please?
0: So I'm going to settle on CineTrust for Don't Look Now. Of the two movies we're talking about tonight, this is the one I know better. I'm more comfortable with it. Um, but I couldn't bring myself to to say that I recommend it to everybody. Um, to me, it is a movie for film lovers, for people with a hypercritical eye, uh, horror fans, even puzzle box moviegoers, people who love to take apart odd images and sounds and editing and and piece together meaning. It takes a lot of work, and I think there's a rewarding element in it, but I, I can also get very much on board with your point, Ian, that I think the movie is sometimes... Very much overhyped. It's touted as Nicholas Rogue's masterpiece, even by um, the Criterion Collection themselves, who put out a great Blu-ray, which I'm very proud to own. Um, but yeah, this will be a, a really interesting conversation, but I am ultimately more positive. I was between must and trust. I will stick with trust. Uh, there's stuff in here that's not for everybody, but I stand by it. The the three reasons I'm voting a Trust is I do think this is a pretty beautiful portrait of a couple under siege with grief. And it is... Very understated and subliminal and and I think everything in this movie goes one of two ways i think I think the movie provides the viewer with so much room to love or hate everything that it is putting out and uh I don't blame anybody who hates it uh because it's it's really challenging and even when you are on board with the, what the movie's saying i I feel you got to give it a lot of leeway and you have to really respect Nicholas Rogue as an experimental filmmaker but i do I do like the the portrayal of Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie's characters uh, my second reason in, in a very heavy thematic tone uh this movie I think very well addresses the incomprehensibility and the wonder and even the horror of existence there's a lot about if fate is is a guiding force in life in this movie and I think that the movie raises a lot of questions about that and again to, to speak to like this fork in the road you can love it or hate it that there is horror in this, in the way it's approaching these ideas. There's also kind of a beauty to it. Um, and then my third my third reason, absolutely the biggest like film nerd reason, I do think it's very fascinating to study this movie's editing, and to a lesser extent, it's cinematography. There's a lot going on with color, with the way that they film Venice, but uh, really I think this is an editor's movie, and I, I'm really excited to talk about the way it's put together and how that can lend to its incomprehensibility, but it can also lend to why a lot of filmmakers just absolutely adore it. But yeah, to me, it is the, ki- type, to me, it is the type of movie only filmmakers can really, really truly love film goers. Uh, I think it's a, a little bit harder for us, but still a movie I think worth seeing to, to film fans, to horror fans. But yeah, very, very 70s. I think both these movies, very 70s horror, which is a great decade for horror. And um, don't look now to speak to your hype point is often touted as one of the best, but I don't know, man. In, in spoilers, we're kinda, we'll have to talk about that, that legendary status it's achieved and whether or not it's deserving.
1: Well, I I do I will say that I do love your reasons, especially the second one. I, just based on that one alone, I think I'm i pretty confident that you may be able to sway me to a Cine trust
0: All right. I have I'm a man on a mission, Uh, not unlike the protagonist of our first film, Sergeant Howie. So before we move into talking spoilers for The Wicker Man, are there any final spoiler free things that you would like to say about either movie, Ian?
1: No, I don't think I'm I'm excited to get down into the meat of it. Okay.
0: well, I hope you are all sufficiently tantalized. Then Um, we are Ian and I are 100 percent on board. Everyone should go see The Wicker Man. So if you have not, we recommend you stop before we go into spoilers and then come back to the episode once you've seen it. Don't look now uh, a little shaky. If what we've said hasn't really swayed you, I think you're okay to just uh, move ahead with the episode.
1: I will amend that just very slightly. If you are going to see The Wicker Man, make sure it's the 94-minute final cut. Uh, Anything else except no substitutes.
0: Okay, 94-minute cut uh, available on a a wonderful Blu-ray that's been put out, so that's the cut to watch. Okay, then without further ado, why don't we get over to Summer Isle to start talking spoilers for The Wicker Man. Not... those children out there, they're jumping
1: through the flames in the hope that the God of Fire will make them fruitful. Really, you can hardly blame them. After all, what girl would not prefer the child of a God to that of some acne-scarred artisan? And, and you, you encourage them in this? Actively. It's most important that each new generation born on summer, I'll be made aware that here the old gods aren't dead. And what of the true God? To whose glory churches and monasteries have been built on these islands for generations past. Now, sir, what of him? Well, he's dead. He can't complain. He had his chance and in modern parlance. Blew it.
0: Okay, Ian, so we have synced up a, a lot on the Wicker Man. We, you know, verbatim one of our reasons is Christopher Lee, but we're also very tuned into the thematic weight of the Wicker Man in terms of its approach to religious ideologies and you specifically call out what this movie is saying, old gods versus new gods. I want to start there. What about this movie, or what about that idea makes this movie something that everybody has to see?
1: Well, there's a, there's a great moment in exposition where Christopher Lee, is, is he's met Howie, uh, the Edward Woodward character, for the first time, and uh, they go to leave the house, and they're, they're walking, and Christopher Lee is explaining to him about how their lifestyle came to be and he talks about his grandfather and there's a wonderful line where he says his grandfather with, uh, with typical uh, mid- mid-Victorian zeal set about to work to make this uh, an inhabitable island because the, the inhabitants were scratching out a living uh, off of you know fishing and, and hunting and things like that, uh, just barely eking out an existence. And he comes with these new strains of fruit and he found that the people were much more willing to work for him if he gave them back their old ideology that they were happier uh, in the way things used to be before they had uh, Christian oppression or other re- I, I won't I won't call out Christian specifically but of, of just religious oppression in general and taking away something that used to be so important to them and replacing it with something else something that is uh, more digestible to some or maybe more popular at the time I I, I love the idea of of multiple gods and having to appease them and um and and praise them rather than having this this godhead figure christopher lee again has another all all that dialogue i think we can agree is just so wonderfully written and very biting and very uh very to the point he doesn't mince words he talks about how you know what how he believes in is what he doesn't say it specifically but in so many words he says how is it any different than what you believe because you believe in in your lord jesus christ who himself was the son of a god or son of a virgin impregnated i believe by a ghost so how is that any more or less believable than what i believe in
0: yeah and and that's that's where like my second point about this this clash and overlap of ideologies is coming in because there there is a very nice but not I don't feel like it's an overly acidic attack on Christianity that it's more pointing out how similar the these rituals can be that there there is um, there's an iconography and there there are different rituals for rejuvenation. And in Christianity, it's this this idea of uh, of the sacrament of of still in a way, worshiping death as a way of rejuvenating life, which is exactly what the the patrons of the summer Isle are doing And, um, you know, Howie is always in such a huff of like, well, you know, it's nothing like this. You know, you've got people dancing around naked. And what's funny in that scene, which I agree with you, I think it's the best scene in the movie, is that Christopher Lee is really laying out a much more bouncy, fun layer of logic that when he's talking about the the girls dancing naked around the fire, you know, Christopher Lee's speech is not what you would think. It's not like, oh, but of course we must go back to the roots of nature. He just matter-of-factly is like, well, of course, you can't jump through a fire with your clothes on, don't be silly. And that, that matter-of-factness, I think, is so great because you see these two as, um, as shadows of one another, that their, their ideologies do not come into conflict as much as you would think, or as much as the audience would think.
1: Yeah, well, and he also has the, the luxury of being able to paint himself, because this, this game that they're playing is being played on his home turf. He gets to paint himself as more of the rationalist which it's wonderful to see it from from that perspective
0: yeah it uh he's he's so good um you had mentioned a, a fascination with the movie's approach to ritual. am I wrong there
1: no, no, and uh, I think what's great about uh this cut the final cut specifically is in this version uh the opening is slightly truncated from the longer what they at the time called director's cut the ninety nine minute version which opens with a much more extended sequence of seeing Howie and his interactions with other police officers. There's a moment where, so the, the long cut, the 99 minute one starts with him in his plane. He comes to shore. There's a cop there that greets him. And as they're walking past this wall back to the car, uh, somebody has spray painted Jesus saves on the wall and the the cop knowing that Howie is very religious, points this out to him, and says, There we go, there's a message that we can all enjoy. And he goes, Yes, but there is a time and place for everything. Have it removed. That's one of those things that's very telling about uh, Howie's character. Obviously, uh, unnecessary. Robin Hardy felt that it was unnecessary, pulled it out for his final cut version. And so instead, the final cut starts with, as you mentioned, a sacrament. It starts with the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the wine. And what's so wonderful about opening with that is that now in the final cut, you have a ritual at the beginning and a ritual at the end. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, they 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 serve to be really wonderful bookends.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I wondered about that because um the the 99-minute cut is lost to us, correct?
1: Uh no, you can still you can still get that. I'm not sure about uh what the release for the final cut was like here in the States, but if you import it from the UK, it does actually come with all three versions, so you're you're able to co- compare and contrast. Uh, which I find, um, I find is a, is, uh, I don't, and I don't want to toot the horn of my own country, but when we usually, when we put out movies, we tend to offer as many cuts possible. Another wonderful example of this is, uh, I don't think that the Mel Gibson film Payback, the theatrical cut, has ever been released on a high def format. You can, of course, get um, Brian Helgeland's director's cut. Well, if you if you get it from the UK, the disc actually has both cuts on it, and that's something that I've always appreciated. I want to have, and the thing that I love, and again, I don't want to tangent too far, but the thing I love about the numerous editions of Blade Runner that have been put out recently is you have all five versions. You're able to pick and choose what you want. You're able to see the different editing choices as the years went down. And so, I, I again, anybody who's got a region-free player, I definitely recommend importing the Wicker Man so that you can see the thought process behind the 88-minute the ninety four and the ninety nine. I just I I always I just appreciate having all options.
0: So I only bring it up because I'm very interested by um, the characterization of Sergeant Howie and, and Edward Woodward's performance because I was thinking to myself watching it if the movie would still be a little better if um, if we knew a little bit more about Howie because um, I think a part of the movie's charm is that it very much gets you on the side of the Islanders because Howie is such this stern disciplinarian and you know he he's constantly flipping between being a lawman and a missionary you know he, ex- he exceeds his professional calling for an ecclesiastical one so often and uh, he's kind of using one to feed the other but he's such an unlikable character that um, the the ultimate moment at the end with the sacrifice with the wicker man burning to me always feels like a moment of victory for the audience rather than the terror and I know that a lot of uh, filmmakers who love this, uh, I, I think there's an interview on the Blu-ray with Ben Wheatley where he kind of sheepishly admits, like, I'm very cool with it when he burns to death in the end because I don't really like it. Oh, of
1: course. <laughs> it's such a wonderful juxtaposition, and I I don't want to hark back to The Devils too often when we when we go through this episode, but that's another wonderful point that we could have brought up in comparing and contrasting the two because The Devils does really deal so much with the inability of Cardinal Richelieu to separate church and state, and that is precisely Howie's problem as well. And they, they go into that a lot more in the... And that is one of the things... There, there are two things uh, missing from the final cut that were in uh, the 99-minute version that I am loath to not be in there, and the reason why I disliked the final cut uh, on its original release, I've, I've since come to appreciate it and accept that it is the definitive version. But one of the things... Uh, that was lost is, as I mentioned, the, the longer opening where you get to see him interact uh, with some people on the mainland and some of the other cops, and there is a little bit, like you said, you want more of his backstory. They do talk about him being in a relationship. You see him uh, sitting there with the uh, the young woman in the church, and they kind of look at each other and give each other a half smile. Well, the cops behind his back, before he receives the letter, are talking about Uh, her and how he's saving himself for marriage. And there's a wonderful line about how she'll spend more time on her knees in church than she will on her back if she's married to Howie. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) That's a good line.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I I was really, I was really kind of sad to see that go.
0: I I also do wonder though, if um, I I only wish that because it's what I don't have, right? Because I, I do also think that a part of the charm of the movie is Howie's undaunted, unshakable, disciplinarian veneer that that every time he walks into a place you know that he's just gonna be like shutting everything down as heathenistic and if if he was more sympathetic then maybe that clashing with christopher lee would not uh be as fun because like we mentioned christopher lee's fun is that he's wearing you know the the fancy shirts and the kilts and he's playing piano and he's singing songs and he's such a stark contrast to how he i think i only bring it up because yeah it's supposed to be a horrifying moment in the end that this man is going to be burned to death and. I can only find myself saying like, yeah, get him because he's such a stooge.
1: And, that, and that's the power of this film is that you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to feel that way at the end of this thing, right? Because a man has, you know, as he says, you can wrap it up any way you like. You are about to commit murder, yet we're we're almost rooting mm-hmm. for him to be murdered. You're not supposed to feel that way. And that is what is so endearing, which is probably the wrong word to use and and describes a lot about my character, <laughs> is that... I do find it very endearing. I, I love films that take something that may be considered taboo and it makes us question our own nature and our own feelings about it and forces us to search very deep within ourselves to see if we agree with something or not. A very fine example of that is, uh, I don't know if you ever saw Ben Affleck's first uh, film as a director, the Gone Baby Gone. Oh, I walked out of that film doing some very, very serious soul searching, and I think, and I think the Wicker Man, uh, if you're in the right frame of mind, can do that for you, also.
0: Oh, sure, yeah, it's, it, and I, I like it because again, I don't feel that it um, overly attacks one belief over another. Because I think it, one, one of the things that it does very well that I think lands in a place is the ultimate folk horror movie, as I've said, is that. Um, it is very sympathetic to this community that it is not about showing them as barbarians outside of civilization. Because, you know, this no, type, this type of movie... They're not inherently evil. Yeah. This, this type of movie, you know, in your mind, the, um, the stereotypes are that he gets there, this, you know, isolated island, and it's just grass huts and people, you know, living a century behind the times. And it's so surprising when you get here, and it's this utterly charming village made of all these stone building buildings, and there's a harbor master, there's a castle. Like It's a, a delightful kind of vacation community is almost what it looks like if you could ever get permission to land there. And and I also think that in comparing the beliefs, I, I feel that it is more of a takedown of Christianity, but I think it's only doing that because Howie is such an unlikable character. But I think that, again, it is pointing out the similarities in these rituals and that Whatever approach people are taking to it, ritual is still an action that is deeply important to human beings, no matter their ideology. And I think that's where, like, the really rewarding uh, themes of the movie come through: is ad- addressing like why we have this need to feel a connection to some kind of guiding power. And um, it's also interesting to me the the idea that everybody in this movie, serving some kind of ideology, is trying to give that power they believe in. Uh, power itself. That's, I just said the word power, I think, seven times in the same sentence. But, you know, the, the the sacrifice is to rejuvenate the goddess of the sun and the the goddess of the harvest to give them back the apples. You know, it's it's the people giving the power back to their gods, which I think is very interesting in terms of this, this old gods idea you're talking about, that maybe that's one of the reasons why people were so excited with um, Lord Summerisle's grandfather coming back, that he was finally introducing an ideology where there was a a bit more of a symbiotic relationship rather than the the traditional Christian God who domineers overall and and does not care for the the pity occurrences of human nature well
1: yeah it's it's definitely all about their their love of nature, their love of animals, their love of the harvest there's this may even be. Uh, we don't have to move on, but this might also be a wonderful segue to talk about Christopher Lee himself. He has that wonderful speech, which unfortunately was cut from, uh, the theatrical version because the theatrical version takes the film from how we stay from two nights to just one night. And so you lose the, uh, the Ash Buchanan scene and the, uh, where he is offered up, this young man is offered up to the Brit Eklund character, the landlord's daughter as a sacrifice To Aphrodite, and she says, of course, you must mean for Aphrodite, and he makes no, he says, no, I make no such distinction, this is Christopher Lee talking, and he has that wonderful speech where he says, I think I could turn and live with animals, for they are so placid, they do not make me sick. Uh, speaking about their duty to God. I'm sorry, I'm going to try and get as many Christopher Lee quotes into this 30 minutes as I possibly can. Of course. If I end up quoting the whole movie, no, awesome. I, I apologize. I don't want to bore the listeners with it.
0: Don't worry about that, man, because, you know, both of us, he's a third of the reason why we recommend the movie to everybody. And and yeah, that, oh, is, that is a great speech, just watch, watching the uh, the caterpillars crawl along. And uh, also a little unnerving, I think um, both of these movies, I, we mentioned in General Impressions, they're touted as some of the greatest horror movies to come out of the 70s. For, for me personally, I don't think either of them really would crack uh, maybe a top 10, but it's just such a, a stacked decade with things like Carrie and The Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw and Jaws. These ones, I feel, don't necessarily have the power to scare, but I think The Wicker Man does still have the power to unnerve a lot, which I think is very impressive for a movie that seems as quaint watching it today.
1: I, I, love, I love your use of the word quaint. I think it can be uh, interpreted as that and embraced as being endearing and, and quaint because uh, bringing up the horror movie aspect of it, I mean, this film was never made as a horror film. It was uh, Anthony, I believe it's Anthony Schaffer, the, the writer, said that I wrote it as a melodrama, they shot it as a musical, and then it was embraced later as a horror film. Mm-hmm. And that might have something to do with the fact that it was put on a double feature with Don't Look Now, which I feel was made sort of as a psychological thriller, but I think it was aiming at the the horror audience.
0: Oh, for sure. And and what's so funny about it, though, is that um, I, I've i grappled with this quote you mentioned from Cinema Fantastique, I think, or is the magazine that said, this is the Citizen Kane of horror movies. And, you know, why, why do they say that? And I think it's because it seems to break a lot of the rules for horror because in the 70s, blood becomes a lot more of a of a thing. Gore starts to take over. And yeah, Wicker Man is in a lot of ways such a fun movie. And it's not overly gory. And it's very playful because the entire story, of course, is a game about trapping um, Sergeant Howie into becoming the sacrifice they need. But I, I was very taken with just how lively I find it. And maybe that is part of what I think makes it most unnerving is that I think it is challenging specifically a lot of christian ideology so what's unnerving about it is not stuff that is overtly evil like you said this isn't an evil community but you know for somebody like myself who's who's quite bashful of the nudity you, watching this it's not that it's shot in in an evil way it's actually shot to be rather regenerative and delightful but you know watching a bunch of people just having sex in a field or dancing naked around a fire just puts you at unease and that's where. I think it's getting a lot of its horror clout because really the ritual at the end, I think, is the only thing about it that is really, truly horrifying.
1: Well, and and Edward Woodward said it himself. He made sure that he didn't see The Wicker Man before they shot that, which I think is great. His reaction is about it's about 60% genuine. Yeah. <laughs> he was genuinely terrified of it. He says it is still the most horrifying thing he's ever seen, is when he was being led up that film by... Uh, Ian Campbell is the actor's name who played Oak, as he was leading him up and seeing that his cries of, oh God, oh Jesus Christ, a lot of people think that he might be blaspheming there, but he is, it is a, it's a, it's a call for help. It's a cry, you know? Yeah, it is, it is yeah. a plea. And, and, and again, about 60% of that is Edward Woodward really, really scared, which, which I love. I love when you have those, those moments of, of where acting just goes away and you are really there.
0: And you know, I feel like up to this point, I bagged on Edward Woodward a lot, and Sergeant Howie's character is unlikable. But I think there is a lot that is admirable about him. I I think his um, dedication to his fidelity and not being lured away by the the singing of the landlord's daughter is, is admirable. And I I think there at the end when he's being burned in the wicker man and trying to sing the hymn against the um the village's song of harvest is actually a, a pretty good moment. And you know, you, you can kind of stand behind, like, I don't like this guy. I think he's a little too overbearing and disciplinarian, but he is at least genuine. Like he, he genuinely does
1: believe what he believes. Well, I, I think that his, his trying to drown them out with his own hymn, I think is a real testament to, to Edward Woodward's uh, ability as an actor. And it's a very, very powerful moment. And of course, when he is defeated and the flames are are rising too high for him to deal with. He sits back down inside the worker man and says his prayer. That is, I mean, it's a, it's a moment that that could, I think, not myself, but it, it's a moment that I do believe could move some people to tears. It's very powerful.
0: I yeah, I I found it uh pretty moving, and I'm always very fascinated with um in movies, you know, what people choose to do with. Their last moments, and that's that was really the moment where I was like, "Was I too hard on this guy for the last ninety minutes?" <laughs> like, this, no one deserves this, surely. And again,
1: some of that, some of that is not acting. I mean, he's in there; the flames are coming up around him. Of course, he had a, a an easy escape if he needed it, but I mean, it was getting genuinely hot in there. <laughs> and I and please, nobody believe the rumors that Britt Eklund spread about them killing real animals. No animals were burned alive in that Wicker Man. Uh, Britt Eklund is kind of. Uh, Adam and I have been toying with this idea, so we, in our show, we always do an unsung hero, and I've been trying to push the idea of doing a weak link. Oh, very nice. Uh, you know, so, so who, who is the unsung hero, and who is the, the person that brings a certain aspect of the film down, and it's nothing to do with Britt Eklund's performance, because she's wonderful. Yeah. As Willow, the landlord's daughter, she is, uh, she is a absolutely beautiful woman, tremendous actress, it's a shame that they dubbed her voice over um, I know she was very upset about that, and of course using, using the body double for some of the, the rear shots, I know she was irritated about, but she was very vocal about uh, certain aspects of the production, she was very uh, disparaging about the location where they shot the film, which is Dumfries and Galloway in Scotland, and of course the producers had to issue a public apology for her being so uh, disparaging about the community, so... Uh, she, is, she is kind of the weak link for me and another, while I'm on Britt Eklund another thing that actually helps tie Don't Look Now and The Wicker Man together is if there weren't enough comparisons they also have jealous boyfriends in common so Rod Stewart, who she was dating at the time tried to block the release of the film because of the nudity and of course Warren Beatty did the same thing with Don't Look Now and insisted on, on trying to be a part of the editing uh, because he was dating Julie Christie at the time and very much objected to the sex scene in that.
0: Yeah, that'd be a, a rough position to be in, in a relationship. Let's use this as, as actually a springboard. I I tease that I find this movie as unsettling as it can be to be very fun. And I think an extremely key element is one of your third points that this is really a, a folk musical. I liked um, one of the things that I think makes this the ultimate folk horror movie is that it does not abide by just the stereotypes, like I was saying, that this is an evil place of, of backwards people in grass huts that it's it's lively, but also that the movie is not just about um, backwards people who are evil, that it's a musical and it's even a mystery movie before it's a horror movie. And I think it balances them all very well. But I was so taken with all of the musical numbers and just how much they do in terms of getting you on board behind what this community believes that it is, it is an island of people who revel in uh, music and the regenerative power it has. And, and, you know, I was so surprised with the number of songs that popped up, but I think I'm kind of just taking it surface level, it sounds like to you, like this musical element specifically is a third of the reason everyone should see it, so I want
1: to hear more about it. Well, I, the songs themselves are just so charming, and they're, they're a little bit disarming. I mean, the, some of them sound very, very sweet, but they are quite sexually explicit in nature.
0: Oh, Britt Eklund's song. I know, there's, there's that Holy one. Cow. Her,
1: her song of seduction, where she's trying to get Sergeant Howie to come next door and to come to bed with her. Uh, so let me ask you, can you imagine the film without the Gently Johnny number?
0: Which one is that? Is, is that the one where she's luring him?
1: No, that is the one uh, that's, that's the first one. When, when the kid comes where, up. Where Ash Buchanan comes up, and they, Gently Johnny is, I think, my favorite song in the film. Now, of course, because in the theatrical cut, um, they take How We Stay Down from Two Nights to One, the Gently Johnny number is lost completely. And that is just utterly heartbreaking to me. It's such a wonderful song. uh, So light and kind of breezy and, again, very disarming. But what he's singing about is, again, very sexually explicit. And it was supposed to be, they were going to release a soundtrack album, which they did eventually, and I've got it on uh, uh vinyl. Uh, it's one, one of my favorite vinyls that I own, it's, and it sounds wonderful. I can't imagine the film without Gently Johnnie because of what it does to set up the Willow character and what it does to set up the second night's seduction between him. I think I think taking the film from two nights to one was a huge mistake because it also it, it does a disservice to Howie's character and makes him look like he is very easily seduced. But if you have him there the second night, well, he's already heard Willow the first night and uh and so now he's he's much easily led astray rather than being led astray immediately Uh, it's a kind of weakness in him but anyway gently johnny was going to be released as a as a single from the soundtrack album and of course because they cut it they couldn't do that because it would have been completely out of context
0: and and i even like what that is doing in setting up how he's in in opposition to the community which which you get with the following scene in the schoolhouse but um you know this really gets across that idea of of the pilgrim in the strange land and where this can be very unnerving, but not overtly evil, because it's not like an evil act. But it to me it is very weird that you have you know this entire pub of people, you know singing to get the mood right for you know this couple's lovemaking, which to me it is an act that should be incredibly private. So it's not that it's a a wicked action. It's just kind of like geez guys, can we give them some privacy? So there there is an unnerving element to it. But then, yeah, to, to have Howie in the next room being able to hear everything and really trying to just cling to his prayers sets up how isolated he is. And it's doing it in such a way, like you said, that is this very lovely soft music number that is about like this entire community that is centered around this regenerative action. It, I, I do really like that number. And I think that it's a shame that they cut it out for that first cut.
1: Oh, and uh, another song that was truncated, obviously it's still in there, but was truncated was uh, The Landlord's Daughter. And so when you talk about uh, this act as as being something that is completely out of uh, Howie's, you know, it is, as you said, something that it should be very private, they set up that the community is very much, of, they're very playful talking about the landlord's daughter and you'll never love another. So this is something where, for them, this is just a part of everyday life. And so then Howie is the strange one. He's odd for not accepting this because this is just our way of life. You know, we just accept that Willow, she and herself, is almost a rite of passage.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I like that number. That's a, a super fun just pub song. So maybe to correct what I just said, because you're right, that the landlord's daughter does set him in opposition, but I think uh, Gently Johnny gives him a vulnerability because you know out in public he's stern unwavering you know his spine is a straight line all the way up but with gently john johnny you finally hear him i I think you even hear him weeping he's bowed over he's crying like you do get to see him as a more vulnerable figure which i personally don't think there's quite enough of in the movie so i'm very glad that that is uh added back into this 94 minute cut because i do think it does good things for the character
1: and and speaking of the the 94 minute cut specifically the the second reason why I was so loath to accept it as the definitive cut at first is it cuts a moment which in the longer cut is one of my absolute favorites the tinker of rye is still in there that's the moment with Christopher Lee playing the piano and that's where uh, Edward Woodward has discovered that in the grave of Rowan Morrison, the missing girl, uh, they have placed a, a hare. There's no body in there. There is an actual uh, a rabbit in the grave instead of her and, and Miss Rose. The schoolteacher talks about it being a lovely transmutation and something that Rowan would have appreciated. That Tinker of Rye song... Is, is cut, and, then, and the 94-minute version, it starts immediately with uh, the Miss Rose character singing her verse. Well, there is an extended bit where Christopher Lee actually starts the song, and he begins, there was a tinker, lived of late, who walked the streets of Rye. Uh, that moment is, I, I promised my wife I wouldn't embarrass myself by singing it. Um, <laughs> but she's not here. Yeah, she's not here, but I, <laughs> I, I definitely do not have anywhere near enough whiskey in me to start serenading anybody. That's, that's our loss. Yeah, that it is a moment that was uh, maybe maybe I'll record it for you and you can add it as a bonus feature or something.
0: I'd love to. That would be great.
1: Uh, so so losing that, just losing more Christopher Lee, just in general, irritated me to begin with. But you know, like I said, you can you can pop it on the soundtrack album and you can still you can still have that. But the fact that his little opening bit, it's it's like thirty seconds. Why couldn't we have had just that little bit of thirty seconds more and just had a little bit more of Christopher Lee, who was in himself a wonderful vocalist. In fact, he had before he died he was in a metal band if you can believe that and they did two rather big concept albums about charlemagne which is insane i just i love that that is a world that we live in where christopher lee is the lead singer in a metal band as if he hadn't accomplished enough you know he was he was dracula he was fu manchu i mean there's a great little meme where somebody has a picture of him and listed all of his accomplishments and let's see Chuck Norris top that. That was in there. The fact that he is he's the leader in a metal band. Uh, he was a James Bond villain. He was Summer Isle, Saruman. Like his list of accomplishments goes on and on. My favorite anecdote about... A literal... Oh, sorry. My, my favorite anecdote about Christopher Lee is actually the one from Lord of the Rings in the, in the cutscene. This scene. is where I was going to go. Yeah, in the, in the cutscene... Uh, It's in the extended version of Return of the King, because if you see the theatrical, we're kind of robbed of his fate. Um, He gets stabbed in the back by Wormtongue and, of course, falls to his death. And Peter Jackson recounts this tale of going up to him. He's like, okay, Chris, so now when you get stabbed in the back, and he's like, no, 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 no. You don't need to tell me. I know exactly what a man being stabbed in the back sounds like. And I can just, oh, I can just imagine the look on Peter Jackson's face as he slowly backs away. (laughs) Okay, Chris, you're the boss. <laughs> yeah he's good i i
0: was realizing prepping for the show um this is the second episode in a row in which christopher lee makes an appearance he has a cameo bit in hugo and i think i derailed our last episode in the hugo section just to talk about how much i liked christopher lee in it and i had no no critical point to make or anything i just like stopped the episode to say i like when christopher lee shows up and gives him a book and it just makes me really happy um so this is making me wonder if maybe we should add uh, Attack of the Clones or something to the Star Wars Extravaganza ne- next episode so we can just keep Christopher Lee in the rotation.
1: Well, you're you're not going to be able to avoid prequel talk. You're going to have to to deal That's with true. it even in a sort of ancillary way.
0: So he, he will definitely have to come up, but here in Wickerman, yeah, he's so great because he's he gets to have fun and you said this was him getting to break out of his Hammer horror film phase. I, as I I can very much understand where he's coming from as a serious actor wanting to get out of that. But, you know, his his Hammer movies, I think, are a ton of fun. And he's it's so much fun to watch him as Dracula. But I do see why he's drawn to this role, why he still revered it up to his dying days as his, his best movie, because he is he is getting to be so playful and sinister. But he's also like so likable. He just has this charisma. And you're like you said, that scene where he first meets Howie is the best scene in the movie. He's always got this smile on his face. And even just down the line as they're they're marching towards all the rituals to dump the ale into the sea, to the, the sea gods. I, I love that when they're dancing down the roads and Howie is disguised as the fool and Christopher Lee is just like, Kempman, come on, you call that dancing?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, because you know he's he's in on it, but he's, he's trying to not let Howie on. And so he still thinks that it's the bartender in the punch costume. And so what have you been into your own whiskey again? And stuff yeah, like that. And he's
0: having so much fun messing with him. Yeah, like he, he is thoroughly enjoying this game that he's playing.
1: He's just an actor that was 100% in control of his craft. Of course, he made a slew of movies, and of course, they're not all going to be great. I think he has something like 270 credits on IMDb. So of course, yeah, there's going to be a lot of garbage in there. And he did talk about feeling regret that sometimes he would just have to take a job to pay the bills, as you do when you're a working actor. But when he was on... He was more on than most actors of his sort of, of stature and ability. And if you would like a hot take to take away from this episode, he is the greatest Dracula of all time. Bela Lugosi can go spit as far as I care.
0: Okay, that is a hot take. I will not debate you on this. We will save it for a Dracula episode, but he is very good Dracula. And um, yeah, I, I'm with you. He's, he's a very prolific actor, and I, I always compare him to Vincent Price because Vincent Price has, has a similar filmography, but when you watch both of these guys, they never seem to be phoning it in. They can be in the cheesiest, schlockiest, like worst piece of garbage you've ever seen. But Christopher Lee is always trying. Yeah, he's always not. giving it his all, just like Vincent Price is. And I think that's why we love them both so much.
1: He's able to elevate almost anything that he's in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I use the word almost because, uh, believe me, Police Academy 7 is worth nobody's time. He does his best. <laughs> but stay away from that.
0: Okay, we found another cine bust. So we're about coming to time on this, um,
1: but are there any final words you'd like to say about the Wicker Man, Ian? I just I want to just continue to urge people to see it. I mean, I'm I'm so biased on this type of film. I don't, and I and I think we made a pretty good point about it being. I don't I don't know. I don't think you use the word misunderstood, but I I certainly do feel like it is misunderstood when people label it a horror film. I think that's a very easy box to just put it in. But if you start to scratch below the surface, you start to see so many layers that don't have anything to do with a horror film and really are just more uh, commentary on you know social ideas of of how you how you choose to conduct yourself in a religious way and and things along those lines.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I, th- I think actually the movie functions strongest as uh, a mystery movie. I, I think that you know what what happened to Rowan Morrison is. Is always a very interesting thread, and the, and the movie you know, threads you along the same game that Howie is that everything here is orchestrated to look suspicious, so that he'll keep following the breadcrumbs because they're trying to lead him to where they need him to go. I think all of that part of the movie is really great, really entertaining, and that was a, a big part of why I voted it cinema must. Is because um, you know with horror movies, I think it's it's sometimes tough to to rank them cinema must because so few of the classics are really scary, and that seems to be what people care about most nowadays in terms of horror movies did it scare me if it didn't it's a bad horror movie and i i don't think that's a great uh, measuring stick for it because i don't think the wicker man is super scary but i think it is as we've talked about immensely deep on a thematic scale uh performance wise it's great but it also just totally subverts your expectations for what type of movie it is supposed to be just based off of the plot summary that you get So yeah, really rewarding, a great mystery, a great, you know, traveler lost in a strange land movie. And also very short. We have a a sort of definitive cut and it's only 94 minutes, which is an easy movie. Oh
1: yeah. Easy, easy watch. It's not going to take up too much of your time. Before we move on, I did have one final point as we, as we talk about Christopher Lee. Please. I'm, I'm, I'm always a sucker for how films do as far as accolades go. And I do have... Uh, The only thing, really, of note was that there is an Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror, they're called the Satin Awards. And in 1979, for some reason, I I think it's because the film got a small re-release in the late 70s, is why it wasn't recognized at that particular award ceremony until then. Um, It did win Best Horror Film, beating out, of all things, Halloween which some people might find as, as sort of sacrilegious as we talk about this film not even really being a horror film and more of a, a mystery musical. Yeah. Uh, the, the, other, the other big one is they did give Christopher Lee a Lifetime Achievement Award at that particular ceremony, but he was nominated for Best Actor and lost to Warren Beatty for Heaven Can Wait. Now, I haven't seen Heaven Can Wait, so I don't really have too much to say about his loss, but I was wondering if you had and how you might feel about that.
0: Sure haven't, but... Um... Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna give it to Christopher Lee, anyways, just because Warren Beatty has really impressed me only a handful of times, and I can't imagine a, a performance being this giddy and fun and involving and, and multi layered as well. That this isn't just a fun performance. Like there, there is a sinister undertone here. He's balancing a lot in his acting.
1: Yeah, I think that's a. I think that's a wonderful place to leave it
0: yeah okay well let's let's do that christopher lee is awesome is the gigantic takeaway but the wicker man uh, a wonderful movie very much worth everyone's time we will see how it goes in the polls of course uh, you guys will have the final say but before we shut down the episode completely let's get on back over to venice so that we can start talking about nicholas rogues don't look now it's okay it's okay i have a friend
1: Won't hurt you. Come on. (laughs) Darling.
0: Okay, Ian, so um, we, we just ended The Wicker Man in terms of um, accolades, and uh, one point that you made, so this is a Cine, This is between Cine trust and Cine bust for you right now, and, and based on how this conversation goes, uh, depends on how you're going to land on that, so we will make sure to get your official vote by the end.
1: Oh no, I won't. I won't leave anybody hanging.
0: Very good. I can't wait to see if, uh, if I work some good in the world. Your third reason on why you're not sure is that this movie has such hype around it. And um, I think this is honestly a point that is going to get addressed throughout the next half hour conversation because this movie is very, very revered. We mentioned, you know, the Criterion Collection on the back of the Blu-ray. It's it's a masterpiece from Nicholas Rogue. Um, I think the British Film Institute has rated this the number eight greatest British film ever made. Like this movie is adored. So I'm not asking you to make a statement on that now, but uh, I just kind of want to put it out there that reacting to the hype, I think, is going to be a key driving force of this discussion. And where I'd really like to start it is the performances because they're both going back to this idea of grief that I think the movie has running under it very strongly. I think that's what people gravitate to. I very much like the performances. You're saying that you're not really buying them. So I think we ought to start there. Should we start with the blind, the elderly sisters or should we start with our star couple?
1: I think we should start with our our star couple.
0: Let's do it. Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. Tell me about them.
1: I think if, I'm, if I've gunned to my head, I'm forced to choose the better of the two performances. I'm probably going Donald Sutherland. And, and it's not only because he has, I think, a little more work to do than... Well, I should say he has a lot more work to do than she does. But there's... Um, I'm trying to find the right word. I keep coming up with whimsy. And maybe that's not right. And maybe you can help me find a, a, a better word for it. But there is a, a slight whimsy in her performance. I don't really feel... A ton of her grief there is a moment where she's first met the sisters and she's in the 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 restroom of that restaurant with them and she has a moment where she she's been told by the clairvoyance that oh yes christine is there with you and she's laughing and uh, julie christie has a small breakdown but throughout most of the film i and i don't know why this is maybe not fair to to her but when i think about films that involve couples grieving. There were two films that I kept coming back to as I was sitting and, and letting this film kind of wash over me. The first one is a film from twenty ten called uh Rabbit Hole mm-hmm. with uh Nicole Kidman and Aaron Eckhart and I think that is a tremendous look at a couple who have lost a very young child. Uh, it's a it's a great early performance, very small performance from Miles Teller as a, a young man who was driving down their street a little bit too fast and the kid run out into the, the street and got, and got run over. Her grief and her bitterness, I think, has become the yardstick by which I measure all other films that deal with, with grief of this type. And Julie Christie just isn't able to hit those kinds of notes in the same way. And again, we're talking about uh, a difference of a generation between two actors working in two very different films. But when you, when you want to talk about comparing grief, there's just something in Julie Christie's performance that to me does not ring true. And, and, and the other, the other thing that kind of lets this film down is that we have no context for really how long it's been since Christine has died. And that was the thing that irritated me the most. Has it been years? Has it been months? I mean, when we do see their son, Johnny, he doesn't look like he's aged very much. No, it doesn't look like it's been long at all. It, it, my, my, if I had to take a wild stab in the dark, I mean, the there it's December in Venice, if I if I remember correctly, because it's the winter season, the hotels are closing, so you get the feeling we're November, December, and when we're looking at the shots at the beginning of England, it's it's a very gray day. I mean, this could be. This could be uh, a year previous, it could be spring, so we could be anywhere from a year to maybe only six to seven months away from this event, and I feel like uh, a mother with a very young child, I I guess the age doesn't really have anything to do with it, but I feel like uh, there should be some more melancholy to her performance that just isn't there.
0: So as you've been talking, you've actually made me realize like a key component of how I approach this movie, which is probably contributing to why I'm making excuses for it, is almost what it feels like is that Nicholas Rogue puts his movies together in such a way that he is always more interested in eliciting emotion. And logic does not factor into his shooting style, and especially not um, his editing style. And to me, that's a lot of what Don't Look Now is about, is it, it is a movie about playing with time and space and how none of those things are as they seem. So these um, these clues, like you're saying, I, I actually agree with you that it's frustrating that there's not a clear timeline but at the same time, it is it is the intent of the movie to discombobulate that and to make you feel adrift. And I do think um, it's a problem in terms of fleshing out Julie Christie's character more fully. But I, I do appreciate her performance in stark opposition to Donald Sutherland's because they, they have the two different approaches to how they've coped with this. Um, that you're right. We only get the one scene where she she's kind of sullen and she's just writing a letter back home to Jonathan and she gets the news about Christine, you know, reaching out from beyond very quickly. And the rest of the movie, she is happy, which um, ideologically speaking, I think is a very interesting point this movie makes about belief in the afterlife it is um, this does wonders for her. I really like this scene in the middle when she's walking with the sisters in the park they ask her about the daughter and then they remember their manners and they're like oh never mind and she she jumps on it she's like no i would actually really really like to talk about it and it and it becomes apparent that that's not that hasn't been the mode of the marriage the marriage has been about burying it down and that's what donald sutherland is trying to do he's trying to restore you know the dry rot of the cathedral and i think that that's you know the the symbolism for his own outlook on losing his child um so so it always is about more broad visual metaphors than it is about things that make sense in terms of approaching these characters psychologically, which is interesting because I think you could really categorize this as a psychological horror movie because so much about the way it's put together is meant to mirror, you know, getting lost in one's own guilt and psyche, you know, those dark canals in Venice double for, you know, the incomprehensibility of fate and, and guilt that this couple is lost in.
1: Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that scene of hers in particular, where she talks about wanting to talk about it, because I do feel like that is one, one of two of her best scenes. The other one being uh, their comfort together when they're alone in the hotel room and they're both yeah. uh, naked, they're both washing, she's in the bathtub, he's just gotten out of the shower, and she has that wonderful moment where she calls out, oh, you're getting the." she calls out his love handles, you know, he's putting on weight <laughs> again. Which I, which is, is great, because there, there's a subtext there. It says, yes, I mean, he is a grieving father. He probably stopped eating for a while. He probably lost some weight. And now that he's back in Venice and he's working again, he's in a city with such wonderful cuisine, yes, he's probably putting weight back on again. And that is such a that is a very uh, tender moment. I mean, I think it's supposed to disarm us slightly. And I, it, it does achieve that goal. That seems so good. And we, sh- we should talk about this. The, the thing that drives
0: me the most crazy about Don't Look Now is it's only, remem- it's only talked about for two scenes. It's talked about for the sex scene, and it's talked about for the ending. It, to the degree that that's all the essay in 1001 Movies is about. It's, it's a full-page essay, and it's about those two things. And that kind of drives me crazy. But there is no denying that, that scene you're talking about. It's, it's the linchpin of this point I have about, I, I love this portrait of this couple that's under siege, because that, that is such a booing moment, because so much of the movie is about their disagreement over how they're dealing with it that christine is choosing to believe in the supernatural occurrence that says her daughter is still out there and it's doing wonders for her she's happier for the first time in forever and he's keeping it buried and he's obviously very unhappy he's uncomfortable everywhere he goes but that one scene doesn't show them in stark opposition it's a it's a very honest great scene that just shows them coming together and and true affection and i think I I would probably agree with the the claim that it's the best sex scene ever filmed. To me, just because it's not about titillation, that it's intercut with them going through the motions of getting dressed and going out for dinner, and it has just so many observances about like those those little things and living in the bliss after a, a lovemaking session that seems so potent and and true to life. I don't know how you how you felt about it, but I I think is one of the two things this movie's talked. Or revered for, we should at least talk about. What's your reaction to the sex scene?
1: I don't know. The sex scene is... is there's an awkwardness to it. Which yes. I, I understand in the, in the filming of it that it was extremely awkward. They were there at 7 in the morning and they were there till quite late in the afternoon with Nicholas Rogue just barking orders at them. <laughs> which, I mean, the actors talk about this all the time, about how filming sex scenes is incredibly unsexy. And this one, I think, ranks among some of the most unsexy and I think because it's supposed to serve a purpose that that, as you said, isn't titillating, you the I believe it was either the cinematographer or the editor talked about this in one of the features that I saw about how we're we're supposed to believe that this is the first time that they've made love, maybe in in a year, or more than a year.
0: Yeah, it definitely is an explosive moment.
1: Yeah, and it's it's about the reconnecting. And and I the, the thing that I do appreciate the most about this film and what stops it from being maybe completely a cinebust is the editing I think it's, it's very inventive and um, just there's a, there's a uniqueness to the editing and I, I want to address that again uh, when we talk about the beginning of the film but the, the, I don't know There's just a, the awkwardness doesn't just come from the way that it was directed for me it's, it's part of another point that I brought up in why I'm on the fence about this film is the music in that scene pulls me right out of it okay there that the music there is is kitschy and I think they they scored it to be deliberately kitschy I think is is the way that Rogue talked about it and I can't wrap my mind around the reason for that
0: that's funny because I know it was actually toned back it was actually meant to be much more melodramatic and orchestral and they toned it down, and I thought that that was the, the right way to go, to, to have like that simple piano and the strings coming in, I thought, lended the scene the simplicity that, to me, does
1: make it so good. Well, I, and I, I may be a little bit biased towards the, the composer as well. Pino uh, Donaggio, I think his name is, he is a, is a regular collaborator of Brian De Palma's, and that is the thing that holds me back from enjoying yeah. some of De Palma's films. Like, I think the, the score in Carrie does the same thing it's very uh it's very intrusive same with blowouts as well the those are those are in themselves both great films but he i just he doesn't strike me as a particularly good composer
0: and and i've always wondered if that's his fault or if it's the the 70s-ness of it because i actually do agree with you you know your second point about the music being kitschy throughout is that there's there's a lot of the the weird synth stuff, you know, things we will hear in Carrie in, in things like Halloween that just do not age well. And I always kind of just I don't think about him a lot because to me, like that's just the 70s. And, you know, we, we've we done an episode on Carrie, which is a great movie. It made cinema. Must, but I, I agree with you that there's times where his sc- where Donagio score is is very on point and great. And there's other times in Carrie where it just along with the hairstyles, just makes it so hard to recommend to like modern day audiences, even though it's a masterpiece. I guess I overlook enough of it because I, it, to me that is just the seventies and I, I appreciated the tenderness of that. But yeah, some of the the spooky stuff in the canals is like, okay, this is, this is 73. All
1: right. Yeah, no, you're de- you're definitely not helping with that score there, man. There's a, there's an aesthetic there that I'm really glad that we let go of just as a society.
0: And I think that extends to a lot of this movie because to me, like, What's going to hold a lot of people back, aside from the very experimental nature of it, again, Rogue going for emotion over logic is, as much as I like the editing and, and appreciate studying the cinematography, like, Rogue's obsession with zoom lenses does not <laughs> age well. Uh, I, I Honestly, I think it's better in this movie than in some of his others, just because the movie is put together to be so incomprehensible and disorienting. So yeah, I... Really, really, really want to talk about the editing itself, which you, to me, it sounds like you're saying that's actually a positive element.
1: That, no, it is 100%. And uh, another point that, that both Roeg and his, um, I, I said Roeg there, I've, see, I've always heard it pronounced Roeg, and I guess I was I was corrected when I listened to the features and they actually say Rogue. So uh, excuse my, my flub there. Uh, his editor, uh, Graham Clifford, and him talked about how the entirety of the film is contained in those first seven minutes. Uh, you, you see pretty much everything that's going to happen, where it's with, with the, the drowning, of course, is repeated, the, all the images of water, uh, her red mac being reflected in water, there's the breaking of the glass. Of course, we have the great sequence where he is uh, checking out the mosaic, where he's up on the scaffolding, and the, the piece of wood comes through the glass. And that, that to me, when I, when I stepped back and I looked at the film afterwards, and having heard them say that, I was like, yeah, no, you did. You gave away the whole film in the first seven minutes. Which I in on the one hand is very, very clever. And on the other hand is kind of why did you do that?
0: Because to me, it seems to be such an experiment in in time and space, which filmmakers are just love. to talk. That's all movie making is. It's just uh, compressing, expanding time and space. And I think to an editor, that must be a great, a, a very juicy challenge to, to give away everything in the first eight minutes, but not have people realize it until the end, which endears them to the character of John, because that's. Uh, that's the whole point of the end when he finally comes to face to face with the the homicidal dwarf and realizes really nothing is as it seems. He should have taken his own advice from the first two minutes of the movie and his life flashes before his eyes. And I think that that's as discombobulated as that sequence is when he's getting slashed. And, you know, I I really can see modern audiences just really laughing at it because it's supposed to be this horrifying moment, but it's, it's so haphazard and energetic that you kind of have to chuckle. But to me the the editing of that sequence does still really get at this horrifying idea about how we can't comprehend our own existence and if there is fate that maybe it only ever really comes into focus when it's too late and and how that in itself is kind of a a sick joke that the universe can play on us all that stuff is very deep under the surface that takes a lot of hard reading but i think as wild as that reveal is, and this has, to go back to the hype, I think that this is touted as one of the best endings ever, one of the best twist endings, one of the best horror endings. Um, I'm not going to go that far, but I think it's very, very interesting, and to see, like you're saying, all of this stuff come into focus and realize the game was given away in the first seven minutes, I think is actually uh, pretty pleasurable to take in as a moviegoer.
1: Well, I think that's that's wonderful. I think you just hit the nail completely on the head there, and that is the argument that is going to sway me from a Cinebust to a Sinatrust? I re- that's that's some wonderful analysis. I did it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's that's a we win.
0: Stop! I'm going to blow it in the next ten minutes. No, 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 it's just all Like good. Donald Sutherland's hair. <laughs> you with this movie with with Donald Sutherland's toupee, you do get to play the game of who has better curls, him or Julie Christie?
1: Oh, I'm going Sutherland all the way, man.
0: Yeah, I might I might go Christie just because uh, she's absolutely gorgeous. But man, it's it's a close race.
1: So we haven't really talked too much about Sutherland's performance. He, he has a, a handful of really wonderful moments in this. And I talked about not buying Julie Christie's grief. His grief, I do definitely buy a little bit more. There's a wonderful moment where um, you talk about him stuffing down his feelings about uh, the death of his child, and it almost seems like there's a moment where she might even blame him. Yes. Because she says, uh, while they're, they're walking through this palazzo she says um you know you're the one that let them just just play without supervision and just run around at their own and she's and he says to her well thanks for the memories
0: i i think that's a great that's a great moment
1: yeah and and that's that is plays into part of my disappointment with this film is there's not enough of those moments Mm -hmm. i'm I'm not saying they need to blow up at each other i don't need huge big moments of acting where an actor really just gets gets to let loose i don't i don't need that in particular but i need a little more context for their grief i think is my argument
0: yeah and and i i would agree i would crave that as well that i'm I'm making excuses for like the 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 emotion of a scene rather than the logic but there does seem to still be more potent emotional ground they could cover but i do think i would tack another moment onto that one is um is the big argument where he for the first time it is verbalizing everything that's been just festering in him when he finally breaks down about her wanting to do the seance. And he just says, she is dead. She is dead, 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 dead. I think that that that's the moment
1: in the hospital, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's another great one.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's another one that I'm gonna tack right up here with, um, I I think this is a, a beautifully portrayed couple dealing with grief because that's a moment That doesn't go for the big capital A acting, you know, couples arguing moments. I think that we would see that's that's one outburst that honestly seems to kind of put Julie Christie in her place and that she maybe starts to consider that she has very much bought into the illusion of the supernatural, but maybe a little too willingly that she she is still using it as an excuse rather than as something to cope with her grief. It's really just a, a veneer to put over the top. Which is where this beautiful metaphor of restore, restoring restoring the, the rotting church comes back into play. But yeah, I, I agree, I think, that there there could be a lot more context for their grief. I, I think I'm drawn a little more to Julie Christie's performance, and it might honestly just be because she is the happy one in this very drab tale, and I'm a guy who doesn't usually believe in like letting things boil under the surface. So Donald Sutherland, I I sympathize with him, but it also aggravates me. And so for for that scene of Julie Christie to be like, I really really would love to talk about this. It's such a great moment for me. But she definitely like after this this blow up in the hospital, she exits the movie because the whole movie you find is really Sutherland's and he's doing a lot of very understated work. So you you could sway me into him giving the better performance. I don't know how you felt about this, but while we're talking about things that kind of suck you out of the movie against your better judgment, some of the um The ADR, the the line looping they do on him, is really really bad. His screams,
1: especially when they're when they're on the canals and things like that, some of that is not fantastically synced up. Yeah,
0: and and his screams when he's dangling from the scaffold, which I think is a a beautifully shot moment of crazy stunt work, he's just kind of like, "Uh, uh, (laughs) it's it's pretty bad.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And and before we move away completely from the subject of grief, I'll get my hot take out. Right now so let's and maybe do it. the the argument inducing comments. Uh I think Lars von Trier's Antichrist tops this film in every single regard. Disagree, but we have we have
0: documented in our Antichrist episode I'm not a fan of that movie.
1: <laughs> oh, I, I haven't heard that one. I'm gonna have to go back and very, listen
0: to Very, but... very, very early show. Um Take it for what you will, but yeah, in, as I just mentioned, I, I gravitate towards Julie Christie because she's the happy one. You can imagine how I would react to uh, a Lars von Trier movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I, I, and the reason I say that is it... it... It's depiction of grief, and it's depiction of, of trying to move past that grief. And I, I, of course, uh, you know that movie, those characters are doomed to fail yes. immediately because Willem Dafoe decides to, to treat his own wife as a psychologist, which, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> and, and of course, it's dealing with the supernatural, and it is a far, as far as psychological thrillers or horror films go, it is far more terrifying. Yeah in in most regards i mean it, it is overly graphic i'll i'll give you that it is uh it is no easy watch compared to to don't look now anyway but i just i think its depictions of grief are far more tangible far more realistic and far more uh terrifying
0: yeah i i won't argue with you on any of those things i'm i'm incredibly biased there there are worse movies we have discussed on the podcast but that one i think remains my least favorite I I, oh, I I will take. I love um, that.
1: I love I love that you had such a, a visceral reaction to oh, that, which yeah. is which is part part of my problem. Part of my problem with Don't Look Now is that for me, if a film doesn't elicit an emotional response, and it doesn't matter whether that response is is good or bad. In fact, I did have quite a negative reaction to to Antichrist the first time I saw it, but because it elicited such a reaction for me, that in my mind makes it a a, a good, maybe even a great film. Whereas films that are make you feel nothing, I mean they're then they if if art doesn't make you feel anything, then it's not art. Well, to anyone who's intrigued
0: by that line of thinking, I'd very much recommend the Antichrist episode we did. Our co-host on that, David Sandy, was very much in line with your thinking, David, and I uh <laughs> it's not for me. I know, it's
1: it's it's a complicated one. It's not something that it's you rough. can tackle in just a couple of sentences.
0: Oh, very much. Yeah. But um yeah, so to go with that, because you're right, there's there's much better movies that do deal with grief, which which is why, you know, my my point is not that this is a great movie about grief. I'm I'm way more interested in observing this couple and how they deal with it, because I'm so much more into how their guilt is coming between them and how they're trying to not let it force a wedge between them. I'm I'm very involved with that stuff, you know, in terms of like if it honestly portrays how a parent would feel like I, it really doesn't. Or if it does, it's so subliminal, you know. You you really have to study it, which goes back to my whole point about voting this a trust. Is like, you know, only people who like really want to study movies are gonna love this. It's a movie only filmmakers and those who worship them can really, really love.
1: Oh no, the the editing is uh, is an editor's wet dream. I mean, it's <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating. I and that's again, this this is the reason why it's a cine trust for me is that it is a, that you could. I'm sure people have written volumes on just how well this thing is edited.
0: I was looking up the, um, the editor's guild. We, we talked about this when we did all that jazz. The editor's guild did a list of, uh, hundred, the hundred best edited movies. And I was like, okay, where does don't look now stack up? It is not on this list out of a hundred movies. That's it incredible. It doesn't make it, you know, the, the born ultimatum, uh, goes ahead of, uh, don't look now, excuse me, it's 75 movies. It's not a hundred. But I, I, I really couldn't believe that because I'm with you. Like, clearly, that is such a distinctive stamp on why the movie has staying power. And something you said struck me. You said, um, you know, this one didn't give you like the visceral visceral reaction. I will say I don't think that a lot of what plays and don't look now hits you in the moment. But I do think it's a movie with tremendous staying power.
1: Oh no, that's something I wanted to bring up i I do think there is a a tremendous rewatchability, and I do apologize to your listeners that I only viewed it the once because I'm sure with a, a second viewing, I could have elaborated a little bit more on some of that
0: no i I honestly think that's great because it's it's not an overly obscure movie, but I think it's going to be new to a lot of listeners, so I always think in, on the show it's incredibly valuable to get people with just first time experience
1: well, and even just having this discussion i'm I am very excited to see it again, and I would definitely like to see the Criterion Restoration, another shout-out for the great people yeah. at Criterion, because the, the, the copy that I have has seen much, much better days. <laughs> In fact, I was I was awestruck by the fact that, and if you don't mind me doing a little bit of accolade talk again, please, uh, at the 1974 BAFTAs, which anybody who's not familiar with the BAFTAs is like the the British version of the Academy Awards, it did take home Best Cinematography, which i don't I didn't think that it was a very extraordinary looking film i think I think venice it's in itself the city does a lot of heavy lifting as far yes. as the film's look and the architecture of that that astonishing city. What did frustrate me and i I think it's going to frustrate you as well is it it was nominated for editing that same year at the Baftas and it lost to day of the jackal
0: yeah that's that's a shame <laughs> The number of times we could count when an award show doesn't get it right, you know. Um, It's interesting it won Best Cinematography because of this point I made between editing and cinematography. I think cinematography is definitely the kid brother, but there are interesting things I think the movie does. It obviously, the the splash of red is uh, very striking and I I think has a certain disconcerting element about it that first night with the man screaming and the the little red jacket running across the canals. But also, I, I totally agree with you. Venice does a lot of heavy lifting and something I can actually appreciate about this movie is that it isn't a travelogue that so much of the location shooting they do in Venice could feasibly have been done in a studio because they're going to all the, the back alleys. They're not hitting like the big touristy locations. And I do feel that that lends both a level of authenticity for the location they're in, but also really reinforces everything we've talked about, about this, this beautiful metaphor of this city that sits on the water and water playing such a pivotal role in this couple's lives.
1: Yeah, I knew mean, it was it was absolutely the right city to shoot this in, but yeah, it, it it's not showcasing the best of Venice in the way that something like Even Moonraker showed Venice right. to be uh even more beautiful, which oh god, I just saying that makes me cringe. <laughs> yeah, it's, I I hate everything about Moonraker.
0: You're wise in your generation. Um yeah, but don't look now, uh, very good because it's still authentic Venice. It's not just backlot stuff, but um you you get a real feel for the city and it does Again, it's feeding into the emotion you're feeling. It's it's this level of building dread.
1: Well, yeah, uh, Donald Sutherland just being by himself, and this is something that I'm just going to spitball with something else that I found to appreciate even as you're talking about it, but the, the isolation of Donald Sutherland in what usually is a very tourist-heavy, very popular city, shooting it in, uh making it look like it was December anyway, or or when it was the right choice, the idea that he is alone in what is usually one of the busiest cities in the world, yeah. it, and it speaks volumes about how isolated he must feel.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh, that that shot immediately after the, you know, the first sighting of the red coat, and you know, oh, this the main street was just around the corner. That you know, that's a that's a feasible thing in that city. That the the main street is very hustling and bustling, and two streets over is isolated and and somewhat threatening. To go back to the editing, because that's really where I'm fascinated. I And I'll also join you in giving Criterion mad props, because although this is a CineTrust movie, I'm very proud to own this Blu-ray. They did a fantastic job. I was overjoyed that one of the the supplements they have on there, I think it's the most in-depth, it's the longest, is just a conversation with Graham Clifford, the editor, and then um, Bobby Osteen uh, shepherds the interview, and she's just talking with him about the editing. And it's 45 minutes. And um, it's absolutely fantastic. They did a great job of putting together the, the style and their approach to editing and how it is playing with time and how, how much he enjoys the, the motifs of the breaking glass and the water in that final sequence. And I'll couple this, you know, my third reason about the editing with my second reason about, you know, all at once the incomprehensibility and the wonder and the horror of existence. I think it's all summed up in, in the very famous ending, which is the second scene which this movie is lauded for, which I think we should address. As I've mentioned, doesn't really play in the moment. Seems laughable now. I think the buildup is is somewhat threatening, similar to The Wicker Man. This is a horror movie that really only has one moment of horror in it. Um, But as soon as the reveal is made that this is not his daughter, it's this homicidal little person who's been <laughs> running around committing murders. It seems silly. Why I'm on board with it is because to me the movie is about the cosmic joke that existence can be, and that. When Donald Sutherland says at the beginning of the movie, nothing is as it seems, and all of the editing is, is building towards that, that not everything is as it seems, this sequence is all bringing everything into focus, and I think it's okay to laugh at it, because the entire thing is a giant cosmic joke. What is your take on this other famous part of this movie, the big twist ending? How did you react to it, Ian?
1: Uh, My initial reaction was severe irritation. <laughs> Seve- Go just, on. Uh, to, to the nth degree, I was just what and why and how? <laughs> I understand. They, they make little references. Of course, there's the scene where they see the, the woman being pulled out of the canal, which has been murdered. And then, of course, the priest says, oh, my God, I hope it's not another murder. So we so we have that as the backdrop. Okay, there's somebody running around Venice committing uh, murders. There's potentially a, a serial killer on our hands. But I don't feel like they spent enough. To, I, and I'm not saying I need to be force fed everything. Yeah. But there's there's just not enough backstory provided to maybe. I I don't know that it's necessarily earned its ending. No and, and, and no and, I, and I, I let me amend that. I, I love what you say about it being a cosmic joke, and even you saying that makes me appreciate it even more because that is an idea that hadn't even struck me. but now it's it's deepened my appreciation for for how it ends. I just i don't I don't like that it's just a little insane woman running around in a red Mac, killing everybody. Sure. or anybody that gets in her way, it just it feels there's a there's a it feels almost shoehorned in like they had written themselves potentially into a corner i go well wow what, what can we do that's going to be completely disarming and take you back a little well oh we know there's going to be in in this mac that he keeps seeing there's a there's a there's a dwarf i i don't know it's just it's so it's odd it's 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 very odd
0: it's a big rug pull and i mean of course i i don't think we can blame uh the filmmakers because this is daphne du maurier's short story and i think that this this whole element of the, of the little person is in the story, and I think the story itself even talks about, like, how silly this death must look to, like, the eyes of God yeah. or something like that.
1: Yeah, no, they, they talked about that in the supplements, and I, I think because, I, I think what sort of took me aback is the film deals with clairvoyancy, with second sight, with psychics, seances, and, and the like. I thought, I thought we were heading for a more supernatural ending, I think, is, is, is the, the, Bedrock of my problem,
0: and and that's what's funny is like I I'm with you like I did not really appreciate this until like my third time watching the movie and and then you can really start to appreciate like all the the false starts and everything right like to to me the um the inspector who learned his lines phonetically because he didn't speak English really well you you watch that the first time and you're like he's the murderer like why is this guy who's supposed to be the helpful face of Law and Order acting like such a creep like he's obviously the killer um everything is always a, a misdirect or a false lead which. Is kind of like life, you know. When you, when you search for the pattern in it, we talked about this with our Big Sleep, Big Lebowski episode. You know, some a, a couple of things are going to line up, but a lot of this periphery stuff is is just not involved, anyways. And you you take it all in as a person, and that's another way I think the editing is really good. That it's it's all about that hodgepodge of everything you see, but a, a very small fraction of it actually matters in the grand design of fate or whatever is you know the guiding force toward guiding Donald Sutherland towards his death so it, it, it is like it, it's a sick joke it comes out of nowhere I think because it's so bombastic I, I think that's what causes the movie to have some staying power but I'm still with you that there is a part of me that it still does rub the wrong way a little despite the fact that it's very striking
1: you talk about the inspector and the guy that had to learn his lines phonetically that for me is where the film sort of meanders Slightly. Oh, sure. It's, it's a that that for me is the. I'm still going to say, and if we were doing uh, this show under the format that Adam and I have, I would say, of course, the editing, the editor is the unsung hero. But there is there is a sort of meandering nature to the pace of the film, which I find. Mm-hmm. In, in all of uh, Rogue's films that I've seen, I've only se- other, uh, the only other ones of his I've seen are Performance and uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth. And if I'm, I'm deadly honest, neither of those really left a large impression on me. They certainly didn't have staying power. I mean, the only thing that edges out Man Who Fell to Earth is, of course, Bowie's performance. But that has sure. nothing to do sure. with Rogue's direction. That is just Bowie essentially playing himself in the film you know, an alien version of himself, which, yeah. I mean, how far from the truth could it really <laughs> exactly. have been? I mean, exactly. he, d- he didn't die. He didn't die. He just went home. <laughs> it just, there's something about rogues. I don't know why he's lauded as such an incredible filming. Now, I haven't seen Walkabout. I'm, I'm very excited to see that because I'm fascinated by Australian culture and, and the plight of the aboriginals. So that is one of his I'm, I'm very excited to see. But he's not even, a, and again, I'll, I'll bring it back to, the devils he's not even a ken russell for me as far as british filmmakers go his films have a lot of hype and a lot of of, uh, a reputation behind them but when you when you pick them when you pick them apart obviously i mean we've done a great job with, with don't look now but with the other two at least as i said they didn't leave a huge lasting impression with me and at this point having seen what i've seen of his i wouldn't call him one of our greatest filmmakers
0: and that's that was one of the points or struggle i came up against when i was like looking for any excuse i could to get this to be a cinema must is like nicholas rogues a, a big guy in the 70s he's he's one of the big auteur theory guys and i think that's that's why he's so revered is that he definitely has his own distinct He was very experimental he did have a certain mastery of time and space whether or not he had a mastery of good storytelling is a, is a different matter and and i was trying cause, uh, of the ones I've seen, you know, I really like Walkabout and I really like Man Who Fell to Earth. Neither of them, I, I don't think they stand great shots at being cinemasts either. So I kept thinking like, well, uh, a Nicholas Rogue movie should be a cinemust. Like he, he must have one good one. And I feel like Don't Look Now is my favorite, but I still just don't think it is for everybody. And it's maybe because he's too experimental and he, you know, his his vision just is something to study and pick apart, but it isn't necessarily something to speak to the, the what's an essential movie within all of us.
1: Right. Well I think I think performances in his films, editing in his films, cinematography to a certain extent, do a lot of uh, filling in the gaps that he is not able to to the points that he's not able to connect himself as a director. I don't know, maybe that's maybe that's harsh criticism. I don't know. Like no. I, said, I haven't seen I haven't seen Walkabout. I haven't seen performance in years. I haven't seen Man Who Fell to Earth in probably just as many years
0: walkabout would maybe be the one that's in competition with me, but there's, there's still stuff in walkabout that's weird. It's, um, it's handling of nudity is very disconcerting because it, it's underage people and it's so, and it's so prolific, you know, it's, you know, you're on one hand, you're trying to have like that open mind, like back to nature kind of idea. But on the other hand, you're like, this girl is 14. Can we please not do this?
1: Oh, well, I, I didn't know that.
0: So here I'd be very interested to hear what you think of walkabout. I think, I think it also is a a beautiful movie. I would probably say I prefer Don't Look Now.
1: Well, oh, it's of of the three of his that I've seen, I'm gonna say that Don't Look Now is my favorite so far.
0: Cool. Um yeah, so I'll be interested to see where the votes go with this if um if there are Nicholas Rogue fans out there, because it's it's weird. I feel like I'm a fan, but I don't admire him.
1: That that's a that's a great that's a great way to put it.
0: I, I guess a, a better way is like I, I do admire his technique. It's just like he's not one of my heroes of the 70s. And and another thing we could say stacking up don't look now in the the halls of great horror movies from the 70s it's not one of my favorite i don't think it's even one of my top 10s but there is not another one like it and i do think there's enough <laughs> in it that is of merit that is worth picking apart and discussing as we have learned the past 40 minutes um but that is that is solid cinema trust territory to me this does not reach the the dizzying highs of texas chainsaw or Carrie or jaws or alien like they I mean, it's a tough decade to, to be a great horror movie in because you are, you are in tough company.
1: Well, it has the misfortune of also coming out the same year as The Exorcist, which is probably the greatest horror film of all time.
0: Yeah, really. That, to me, is one of the scariest. Yeah, super great.
1: How, can I, can I derail us for just a moment? How old were you the first time you saw The Exorcist?
0: I was pretty old. My, da- my dad scared me. My dad told me the story about um, my super tough uncle who didn't take crap from anybody and he snuck out to go see the exorcist and he, and he came back and didn't sleep for three days um and so i was like what that did that to, my, to this uncle like holy crap so i was uh i think i was 16.
1: okay i was i was 13. Okay, so pretty good. which is you know, which is too, yeah, which is too I, young. I, I still think 18 is, far, is, is the far minimum too young. age
0: for the exorcist.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things in that that you're going to struggle to grapple with at that age. And I, I had the same reaction that the film gets. Uh, a lot of people, they believe that, that people threw up and walked out during like, the head-turning scene or the crucifix scene. It was actually the realistic depiction of a spinal tap. Yeah, isn't that that, that funny? calls most people? Yeah, and that's actually the the scene that I struggle with the most as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it really it it turns my stomach inside out, man.
0: It's it's pretty bad, but man, that crucifix just oh my gosh, that is gonna be a a very fun episode for us. I can't wait because you will all get to see just how squeamish I can be.
1: Yeah what what would you pair that with?
0: Oh, there's a number of movies we can. Dude, th- this is the, the fun thing you learn as, as you have, Ian, being on our show, is that um, there is not always just the right movie, that, that a movie could get paired up with a, a whole lot of things, and it actually structures the, the conversation in a very interesting way. Um, so, you know, I can't remember if the omen is in the book. If it is, I'd say that's the obvious choice, but that's not the one I'd like to go with. I kind of like to go with things that make you reach a little more.
1: I don't think the Omen is in the book, and actually, the aesthetic of Don't Look Now kind of made me pine for the Omen. Oh, really? I I hate with the with the European setting and the way that it's shot and its psychological no, nature. It is,
0: it is a good pairing. I I hate the Omen. I'll take Don't Look Now any day.
1: Oh, uh, that's sad. Um, if you if you would like a suggestion on Exorcist pairing, uh, you're talking to a William Friedkin number one fan. So I would definitely I I would put that up against uh, Friends Connection and just, and just his, talk about Friedkin. Heyday. I I could. I could talk about freaking all day long, man. Even Sorcerer. Sorcerer's I adore really Sorcerer.
0: Yeah. We'll, we'll see what it what it comes to. I know we have a couple people pining for Exorcist. But, um... Oh, sorry. We, we've derailed. So, yeah, man. We, we have talked uh, at, at great length, which I think is good. I think this is a movie very much worth discussing. Maybe just not one that everyone is going to love. And, uh... I really just want to turn it over to you for last words. It sounds like we've we've got you firmly in trust territory and not CineBust, but... It feels like the hype is still a little overreaching for you on Don't Look Now.
1: That you're one hundred percent correct, yeah. But I, I will I am confident in saying that it is a sin of Trust for me and I, I am very excited to to watch it again and see if there are other things that I can find. Maybe it maybe it may reach Cinemus territory for me one day, and I'm I'm very excited to explore more of, of Rogue and maybe try and reevaluate my opinion on him because I do I do want to give him the benefit of the doubt.
0: Yeah. And and it does reward repeat viewings. And he, again, <laughs> even if I don't think any of his movies are going to make cinema must for me, they are fascinating to study. Uh, you know, especially in terms of like a, a movie that is, is really challenging. And we've talked ad nauseum about the editing and Rogue's particular choice of shots. He, he definitely feels in control. Um, it's not necessarily a direction I think the movie should go most of the time or all of the time. But he definitely has his voice and his direction he wanted to take this movie, and I think it comes through very strongly. So I'm I'm just with you. I'm excited to see how listeners are gonna take this one. Which I guess might as well be as good a segue as we can get to shutting down our conversation and say that we now turn the fate of these movies over to you, the listeners. You are going to have until September 23rd to go to cinemas.com and vote on whether either, both or neither of these movies are going to make cinema status or if they will be relegated just off to the side. Um, we, we will bow to your wisdom. Whatever is decided is decided. But along with just calling for the votes, I, as I do every episode, I'm really just excited to hear whatever way you vote, what your take on this movie is, why it is a must-see, why it isn't. If, if some of these things we've spoken of uh, you agree with, disagree with, you know, whatever people's takes are on these movies is always what I'm the most fascinated in.
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm expecting people to make the right choice when it comes to The Wicked yeah, Man. Yeah, I,
0: I, I honestly don't know how this one is going to go, but uh, we have a, a great community of people who are pretty predisposed to the horror genre, so this one is going to be a, a great double feature. So, Ian, I can't thank you enough for uh, improvising with us and switching out Don't Look Now for the Devils, but I thought that this was a fantastic discussion, man.
1: Yeah, no, I, I loved every minute. It was such a pleasure. Thank you again so much for having me on, man, I, and I, I would be happy to come back again. That's
0: a definite yes. It'll be our great pleasure to have you back. Uh, Of course, with our our bi-monthly release schedule, will be so much later than we really, really want it to be. So until we can have you back on here, can you remind listeners one more time where they can hear your takes on movies weekly?
1: So yeah, go ahead and uh, follow us 1001 by one We're on Podomatic. We're on Stitcher. Uh, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, all those great places where you find your podcasts. You can interact with me personally at 1001 by one on Twitter. And if you want to interact with Adam, he runs our Facebook page. So we're always happy to hear from people, interact with you, um, get your opinions, go ahead and vote. We've got a poll ourselves coming up. We're going to be choosing a, uh, uh, a horror film for our, our Halloween episode. We're very excited to... Uh, see how that turns out we've also as you mentioned we just hit our 50th uh episode i think uh, when this goes out uh, part two of the 50th episode will be uh live and streaming and i'm very excited to start season two off at the end of september with a bang we're going to be starting with apocalypse now and celebrating the 40th anniversary of that i can't wait to share that all with you and to discover the new final cut oh my beating heart i cannot wait for that episode I, I'm, I hope we don't let you down. It's, it's a big one for us. We're starting big, and then I'll, I'll spoil it for you a little bit. We're turning around, and we're taking the soft option afterwards. Episode 2 of Season 2 will be The Naked Gun.
0: Very great. Awesome. I love it. Nothing makes me happier than a, a cold 180. Um, yes, everybody, please follow A Thousand and One by One. Great podcast. We call them our brother podcast. Adam and Ian really are our brothers. uh, We had, I've had a great time talking with you, Ian. Our show on Memento and Pulp Fiction with Adam was also fantastic. So I cannot wait to have both of you back on as soon as I can.
1: No, that'd be great, man. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. Thank you for coming. Thank you all for listening, everybody. We hope that you will join us in two weeks. It's the big one. We are going to be hitting our 50th episode mark, and we have put the content of that show into your hands. You guys have decided that this is going to be a Star Wars extravaganza. We are going to be talking episodes four, five, six, and 7, all of which included in 1001 movies you must see before you die. And this is, uh, this is going to be a party. We're not only talking about four heavy hitter beloved films, but we are also having a huge party of hosts. Every movie is going to have a different duo who's going to be joining me. So some of your old favorites are going to be coming back. I think it's gonna be fantastic. So thank you guys for choosing it. We hope you will join us. It is gonna be uh, pretty epic. So Ian, one last time, thank you, man, so much for coming on. Thank everyone for listening. And everybody remember, nothing is as it seems.